There we go, that'll help. We'll be in the book of Job, chapter 16. If you'd like to open your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We've got plenty of extras in the back, paperback Bibles that we can pass out and make sure that you have. So if you don't have one, Jim's in the back, just kind of wave over to Jim. Looks like we're okay, probably. Wow, right. I guess not. Job chapter 16, verse 1. Then Job answered, I have heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. Is there no limit to windy words or what plagues you that you would answer? If I too could speak like you, if I were in your place, I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth. And the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. Fathers, we continue on in the book of Job this morning. I pray, Lord, single word over the fellowship, over our lives. I pray the word comfort. And I ask, Lord, that it would be a deep and abiding comfort as we walk in this life. And that comfort would be the absolute assurance of Jesus Christ. Lord, even as we took communion this morning, I was reminded again, just thinking... That I believe in You. I, I trust in You. Not because something I'm forcing in my mind, but I believe that You walked this earth 2,000 years ago, Jesus. And I believe it not as a, a story, a, a religious um, template. Father, I, I believe. I know this. I know this to be true. I know, Jesus, You have walked with me in my life. And I trust that. And I pray that comfort, Lord, will come from faith in You, from knowing Jesus, that You are real, that Your Word truly was inspired by You and God-breathed. And this morning as we continue on, Father, there, there's a lot of sorrow in the book of Job and, and this issue of pain and suffering we have talked about for several weeks and we'll probably be talking about for several more. And I pray, Father, we wouldn't be dragged down by it but would be encouraged and lifted up and comforted as we consider the life of Job, the tragedy of Job, but also, Father, our own sorrows, our own struggles. May we be comforted by the truth and reality of Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we ask Your Spirit now to guide us through these words in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a young couple trying to get a very detection of a silver Honda sedan parked right here that needs to move so they can go to the kitchen. Anybody with a silver Honda? If you uh, have watched any of the opening of the Olympics, even before the opening ceremonies, you're probably aware of the of the tragedy that happened uh, on the luge course with a young man who who went off course and was killed. And uh, I, I watched that on the news and uh, didn't enjoy watching it. it. It was hard to watch and to think about. It. And I'll tell you the first thought that entered my mind, and maybe this is just my age creeping up on me, but first thought that entered my mind was how would the father of this young man feel? That was my first thought. How, how, would, his dad, how, how would his mom? How? And the second thought was senseless tragedy. You know, he's on a luge course for crying out loud. And to fly off and to be killed like that, it just, why? why? That, that would be the question that would, that would pour out of my heart. Why? It just doesn't make any sense. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 
verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Now I know we've visited that passage before. I'm not sure how you could study through the book of Job and not go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in these verses. And recognize the God of all comfort. And recognize that just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. We have to emphasize and re-emphasize this truth that God is the God of all comfort. I don't know if, if this if this morning the father and mother, uh, the family of, of this young man are in worship today. Are they at church this morning? Are they surrounded by believers in Christ? Are they able to approach the God of all comfort? And what would the pastor say? What would their brothers and sisters say if in fact, and I know nothing about the family, if... if they are believers in Jesus. What, what words of solace could be offered? I was thinking about this, this and, and looking at these truths that we're going to discuss this morning. And the reality is, gang, any theology that does not offer solace to the sorrowful is bad theology. Any theology that does not um, offer comfort to the discomfited it is bad theology. And I have been guilty of preaching bad theology. Because the theological truth of God and the study of God is that He is the God of all comfort. Now that doesn't mean He's not going to convict and it doesn't mean He won't challenge and it doesn't mean He won't use the circumstances of life to motivate us. But the truth is, if I sit up here as a pastor and I preach words and they drive a nail further into someone's heart or they tear someone's heart further open, it's bad theology. See, that's where rules and regulations without mercy falls short. That's religion. It's why Jesus was so adamant that you cannot keep His commandments without love. That you must love, and by loving the commandments are kept. Not by keeping the commandments do you become loving. It doesn't work that way. God is the God of all comfort. And this is precisely as we've seen where Job's friends are missing it. They are not bringing comfort. They're bringing religion. They're bringing theology. They're upset by the things Job is saying because it's going head to head with the things that they believed. And rather than trying to bring comfort into the circumstance, these guys are battling for their religion. They're fighting for their faith against a man whose life is in shambles. We're in the midst of round two. In what is becoming a punch-counterpunch battle of wits between Job and his friends. In round one... Probably the oldest of the three, Eliphaz, he came out cautiously, obviously carefully choosing his words so as not to be too offensive. He's a little offensive, but not, not as bad as Bildad was, or worse yet, Zophar. But here at the beginning of round two, if you had studied chapter 15, you find out that Eliphaz comes out swinging. He unleashes a fury of harsh, condemning, disapproving blows to the character of Job, it's really quite breathtaking. And we saw the reason on Wednesday night. Eliphaz, the theology of Eliphaz was threatened. His way of viewing God 
was being undermined by the words and the experience of Job. And, and rather than deal with that in reality and in truth, Eliphaz is fighting back. Job's claim of innocence in this suffering rattles the religion of Eliphaz, shook the foundation of his faith, and so he has to reply. Rather than offering solace, he offers scathing rebuke. Ah, religion. I don't know if you've had that in your life. Scathing rebuke where just all you needed was a word of comfort. A word of encouragement. And what you got was a platitude of pain. Any religion that does not bring comfort is bad religion. Any theology that does not bring solace is bad theology. And listen, this is critical. Because as I said Wednesday, I'm not anti-theology. Not in the least. I'm not anti-Bible study. I think you all know how I feel about studying and, and teaching and being in the Word of God. But theology is simply a tool for considering God. Theology is not the finished product. Our faith is. Truth brings comfort. Theology, unless it brings us to truth which brings comfort, gets off track. Because truth, gang, is a person. Truth is Jesus. John 14.6 I am the truth, Jesus said. I am truth and, and truth is me. And because truth is a person and we see how this person walked, how he lived, what he did, what he spoke, we understand that True theology, good good theology, brings comfort and is centered, grounded in love. For all our study of the Word here at the bridge, remember this, please. The purpose is not to become students of Scripture. The purpose is to become disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we're not moving closer to Jesus in relationship and in following after Him, then, then our study's off base and we need to get back on. Now, sadly, Eliphaz takes a caustic, cruel stand. Again, protecting his theology. Which, as we've noticed, is what happens when you're more interested in winning arguments than in winning souls. And that's where he's missing it. And so Job is momentarily staggered as we open up the beginning of chapter 16. He says in verse 2, I have heard many such things. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. That's what Job is saying. And in verse 3 he said... Or verse 2, sorry comforters are you all. Sorry comfort. Is there no limit to windy words? This is an oxymoron, by the way. Sorry comforters. Because he's literally saying, you're comforters of, of misery. Comforters of misery are you all. In other words, your comfort is crummy. Your comfort is callous and cold-hearted. And then Job asks this question. He says, what plagues you that you would answer? What plagues you that you would answer? What is your problem, Eliphaz? Job is shocked. Why are you being so defensive and so on the attack here? What's the deal? In verse 4, he says, If I could speak like you, if I were in your place, he says, let's turn the tables here. Let's put the sandal on the other foot. Or better, better yet, let's put the boils on the other body. Let's say you were the one sitting in ashes. And I was the one here. I I could do a couple of things if we were to swap places. I'd have two options as to what I could say. Option number one, I could compound your problems. I could compound your problems. He says, I could compose words against you, verse 4, and shake my head at you. (laughs) Boy, you've caused this mess. Listen, if you want to know how to make matters worse for someone who's having a painful, difficult time, 
If you really want to dig into them, here's two great ways to do that. You might want to jot these down. Pelt them with platitudes and demoralize them with disappointment. You realize we don't even have to use words to tear into somebody. Someone shares their point of view and you just go... What does it do to the soul, to the heart? Oh, you're you're disapproving. You shame me. Job's saying, I could do what you're doing, but I wouldn't. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. Oh, I could compound your problems, but I could also comfort you in your pain. And this is at the heart of the disciple. Please hear me. It is at the heart of the disciple to bring comfort. Isaiah wrote the following about the disciple. He said in Isaiah 50 verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Because a disciple is one who brings comfort. A disciple is one who, as they share about Jesus, are sharing the joy and the peace and the comfort that comes from Jesus Christ. A disciple listens, even awakens, for the purpose of bringing comfort to others. Jesus said in John 13.35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you... If you what? If you love one another. So fellow disciples, how are we doing with that? I didn't say, how is someone else doing with that? How are those around you doing with loving you? I'm asking, how are you doing with loving others around you after the manner of Jesus? Ask yourself, am I a comforter or am I a critic? Where do you tend to go? Bringing words of comfort, encouragement, solace, or criticism? Here's how things should be done. Here's what's wrong with your life. The critic, listen, the critic is always concerned with personal experience. Right? A food critic is concerned with how it tastes to them. If they like it, it gets a good write-up. If they don't like it, they write down why. A movie critic, how did the experience of sitting there in the theater and the movie before them, how did that impact them? They're only concerned with their own personal experience. The comforter is not concerned with their experience. They're concerned with the experience of others. The comforter is looking outside of themselves to say, how can I make life better for those around me? How can I show love? How can I bring peace and joy, comfort to other people? We have a decision to make, gang. Are we as a church fellowship going to become a denomination of detractors? Or will we be disciples of Christ. It's been interesting this week. I've had a few um, suggestions floated my way about different ministries and programs and, and about worship. And one of them, I'll just share this with you. I came into worship rehearsal Thursday night, and uh, one person on the team said, "You know, I, I'm, I'm hearing from some people that we're doing too many new songs, and it's hard to worship." And I went, "Oh, really?" And then I heard from someone else over here. Well, well, you know, what I've been hearing from people is, is we're doing too much of the same songs over and over and it's hard for them to worship. I said, you know, we've got to get these people together. <laughs> Have them work it out, come up with the perfect worship list and bring it to us. <laughs> Let me tell you, when we were down, I've mentioned this before, down at the Calvary uh, Fellowship Men's Conference, uh, they did a lot of worship throughout the day. 
probably 50% of the songs I did not know. And I want to tell you something. I had no problem worshiping. Because this is where worship happens. Not here, not here, here. In the heart. It is an attitude that we bring to the Lord. And if you don't know the song, read the words. Close your eyes. Enter into His presence. But don't complain about it because if we go down that road, I, you know, I think we're six years old now as a church. And the thing that entered my mind after this conversation was, really? So we're six years along now. Are we now to that point where the, where the sheen has worn off and the, and the honeymoon is truly over and now we're going to become that kind of church? Because I've worked in those churches before. And many churches enter into that place where we become more about how we're going to please ourselves and how our programs and ministries are going to meet our needs. And the moment that happens, the lost become more lost. Because suddenly it's just, it's just about our deal. It's just about making us happy. I don't want to be that kind of church. I don't think you do either. The number one reason, listen to me, the number one reason a person visits a church is not because that church has scratched the right itch. The number one reason a person comes to and stays in a church is because of relationship. Because someone brought them, a friend, a family member, say, come with me. And then once there, someone sitting next to them or around them opened their heart and said, hey, I'd like to get to know you. Why don't we meet for coffee? Why don't we get together? And it becomes truly the personal responsibility of everybody in the family. I'm getting off kind of in a different direction here. I don't mean to. But the bottom line is the responsibility to offer comfort to a comfortless world does not belong to this vague idea of the church. It belongs to you because you are the church. I am the church. It is my personal responsibility, not as the pastor, but as a believer in Jesus. It is your responsibility, not as a member, but as a believer in Jesus, to be a disciple who brings comfort. So how do we get there? Because we can lay claim all day long to being disciples, followers of Jesus. But if our words and our walk are not foremost about bringing comfort to a comfortless world, we as a church body will be no different than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Sorry, comforters. I don't want to be that. So how do we get there? How do we get to that place of discipleship? What is the process by which we become comforters rather than compounders of pain? And it's called discipleship. In fact, I want you to join me as we join Job this morning. He's our guest teacher, and he's going to teach us. He's going to take us through Discipleship 101, chapters 16 and 17 today. Discipleship discipleship training. Say that three times fast. Discipleship training 101. Pick up in verse 6. Job is speaking. He says, If I speak, my pain is not lessened. If I hold back what has left me, but now he has exhausted me. And now he turns to God, mid-sentence as Job often will do, and he says, You've laid waste all my company. In other words, his family. You've laid waste all those around me. You have shriveled me up. It has become a witness. And my leanness rises up against me. It testifies to my face. It's interesting. My mother-in-law always knows when I'm gaining weight because she sees it in my face. Rick, you're looking a little fat in the cheeks. You know, I'm like, 
Or she knows when I'm not gaining weight, when I'm losing weight. She's seen it. That's where it tends to show up. It's interesting to me because Eliphaz, in the chapter before, chapter uh, 15, verse 27, just said about Job, He has covered his face with his fat and made his thighs heavy with his flesh. In other words, saying, Job, you're self-indulgent. And Job responds by saying, Look at my face. Is this a fat face? Look at my face. It is lean. It it is my witness. All you have to do is look at me. It testifies to my face. He says about God now in verse 9, His anger has torn me and hunted me down. He has gnashed at me with His teeth. My adversary glares at me. Do you ever feel like God is your adversary? Now I know, I understand as Christians, we say the adversary is Satan. And that is what Satan means. Adversary. One who sets himself against But have you ever felt in in a moment of pain or sorrow or despair that God was against you? See, Job is actually lofting that thought. God, you know what? So did Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you... What's going on here? It's not a condemnation. It's a question coming out of the heart of Job. He feels like he's in an adversarial relationship with the Lord. Why? Because of his pain. Because of his anguish. Which is why so often, and listen, because this is critical in our relationship, so often people reject the Lord because of pain. Which is why our bringing comfort to a comfortless world is so vital. Which is why more than a scripture memorized, a word given in comfort may bring someone closer to Jesus. Because it's pain that tends to make people feel like God is against them, even when He is not. Verse 10. They have gaped at me with their mouth. They've slapped me on the cheek with contempt. He's talking about his friends. You guys are slapping me around here. They have massed themselves against me. God hands me over to ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. How does the world feel about the church? Does the world look at the church and see a band of ruffians amassed against them? Fighting back for our rights and our privileges against the wicked? Or do they see us as as comforters just bringing the truth of Jesus Christ? Verse 12. I was at ease, but he shattered me. He has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. You almost get the picture of a mother dog grasping a little puppy and shaking it around. You know, trying to discipline a little bit. He's also set me up as his target. His arrows surround me without mercy. He splits my kidneys open, which says something of Job's condition. He pours out my gall on the ground. Listen, you've got to be close to death for your gall to be coming up. Bile. To be literally coming out your mouth. He breaks through me with breach after breach, which is exactly Job's experience. Think about that. I mean, one after another, as the servants came to him to tell him his lands, his fields, his flocks, his his livestock, his family, all wiped out. Breach after breach, attack after attack, he runs at me like a warrior. Verse 15, I have sewed sackcloth over my skin. In other words, my skin is shredded here. And thrust my horn in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping, and deep darkness is on my eyelids. Although there's, there's no violence in my hand. I haven't done anything. My prayer is pure. O oh, earth, do not cover my blood and let there be no resting place for my cry. And he's reaching back here to something that God said back at the very beginning. I heard the blood of Abel crying out to me from the ground. 
And Job's saying, O earth, don't cover my blood. Don't let my blood be... You know, see, here's the point. Job doesn't want to die. For all his words about, oh, sweet death, oh, that I could just be six feet under. He doesn't want to die. He truly doesn't. And so he says, don't cover my blood. Even now, verse 19, behold, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My advocate, my mediator, my umpire. What he's calling out for, he knows. Job knows at the heart of his heart, at the deepest place of faith, there is someone to intercede for him. There is someone to go before him. And he's calling out for that. He's not sure how that works. But he's praying for it. He says in verse 20, My friends are my scoffers. My eye weeps to God. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. Again, as with a mediator. When a few years are past, I shall go the way of no return. Chapter 17, My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Surely mockers are with me, and my eye gazes on their provocation. Lay down now a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will be my guarantor? Christians, who is your guarantor? Jesus is. More specifically, who is your pledge? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to us, Paul says, as a pledge. I have the seal of the Holy Spirit. How do I know I'm saved? I got a pledge. I have a spirit who goes before me and who confirms, speaks to my spirit and says, you're saved. I have that in Jesus, in the spirit of Christ. It's wonderful. Verse 4, For you have kept their heart from understanding and you will not exalt them. He who, watch this, He who informs against friends for a share of the spoil, the eyes of his children also will languish. That phrase, informs against. Moms and dads, listen especially. He who informs against his friends. The phrase informs against is literally praise on. Criticizes. Slanders. Attacks. He who preys on friends for a share of the spoil, the eyes of his children also will languish. As disciples of Jesus Christ, parents, your first and primary concern is your children. Now I share that because if they see you as a critic, if they see you as caustic, as bitter, as a detractor, as a slanderer of others, they will suffer for it. Your children will languish because of it. We need to be aware of that. How many adults today don't even engage in church because their parents complained about it when they were kids? Get in the car after services. Oh, so and so is such an idiot. And yeah, he's just and that pastor's and the and driving home, and, and the kids are listening to this, going, "Oh, so this is church." Their greatest experience of church is not what happens in here; it's what happens in the car on the way home. Oh, so that's what mom and dad really think. Well, this this place stinks. I don't want a part of this. I've talked to more adults whose parents hated church, and that's why they don't go to church. It's it's, it's stunning. And it's not just about church, it's in relationships. If you're bitter, if you're a slanderer, if you're a gossip, your children will pay for it. That's what Job is saying, and he is dead on. They will follow what they see. Verse 6. He has made me a byword of the people. So at this point, people are 
actually talking Job down. Other than just his friends, people are walking by and they're, they're saying things about him. Sinner. Loser. Look at him. He had everything. Oh, he was so pompous. Now look at him. He's a byword. I am one at whom men spit. Verse 7. My eye also has grown dim because of grief, and all my members are as a shadow. And he says, the upright will be appalled at this. At what, Job? At the treatment of his friends. The upright, they would look at the situation and they would be disgusted by what they're hearing coming out of your mouths, he's saying to his friends. And the innocent will stir up himself against the godless. Nevertheless, the righteous will hold to his way. Job's talking about himself. (laughs) I'm holding fast. I know I'm right in this. I will not let go of that truth. And he who has clean hands will grow stronger and stronger. Verse 10, But come again, all of you now, for I do not find a wise man among you. My days are past. My plans are torn apart, even the wishes of my heart. They make night into day, his friends do, saying, The light is near in the presence of darkness. What does that mean? Okay, Consider this. His friends are saying, Hey, there's light around the corner. There's light at the end of the tunnel. If you'll just do this, this, and this. And Job says, they say there's light near, but all I see is darkness. What he's saying is they're holding up false hope for me. How are they holding up false hope? Because they're telling Job to do things that he knows will make no difference. Because he already is in a right standing before God. And they're saying, but you have to do this, 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 and this, and it's false hope. And that's what religion does. It holds out false hope to people saying, if you will accomplish these things, you too might be able to be as good as I am. And people look at that and go, where's the hope in that? Now the hope is in a person. Job's hope is in his Redeemer, in his Father, in God. And his friends are holding out false hope for him. He says, if I look for Sheol as my home, verse 13, I make my bed in the darkness. If I call to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, Mom, sis, where now is my hope? And who regards my hope? In other words, you guys are giving me, again, no hope. Verse 16, will it go down with me to Sheol? Shall we together go down into the dust? Job saying to his friends, you guys are offering me religious cliches, no hope. And it's why, again, that we don't offer religion, we offer Jesus Christ. I heard it was Aubrey Hoffman just last week who said, you know, I'm just not religious anymore. I don't like the thought of even being religious. She said, I just want to have a relationship with Jesus. And I went, yes, that's it. I'm not religious anymore. I just want to have a relationship with Jesus. Because in Jesus there is hope and meaning and substantive comfort. In Jesus there is one who can do something about the life that I live. As opposed to me trying to figure it all out. Now now you might ask, aside from a few points here and there, how is Job's grieving through these two chapters, Discipleship Training 101? Let me see if I can explain. Go over to Isaiah chapter 50. Keep your finger there. Flip just a few books over to the book of Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4, which gives us a prophetic description of the disciple. Isaiah 50 verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Now, if I were to ask you, who is this? I think we can all 
agree that this is a disciple speaking here. The question is, which disciple is it? Read on. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Let's go for a further clue. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Which disciple is speaking here? This is Jesus. This is Isaiah, who is the greatest messianic prophet. Speaks the most in his prophecy of the coming Messiah of any of the other prophets. And he is speaking now. He is talking. He is inspired by the Spirit of Jesus. This is Jesus talking. I gave my back to those who strike and my, my face to those who pluck out the beard. Which, by the way, a few months ago we were talking about Jesus and I said there's no physical description of Jesus anywhere in Scripture. There's one. He had a beard. And we know that because they plucked it out. Go back to Job 16. Job describes his sufferings. But there's something else here. Did you see it when we went through? Job chapter 16 and 17, in these two chapters, in the words of this man in great pain, is a stunning illustration of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. A point by point, it almost sounds like Jesus speaking from the cross. Let me just point out a few things. Chapter 16, verses 7 through 9, He has exhausted me. You have laid waste all my company. Well, we know the apostles fled. They ran. They got out of there as fast as they could. The company that was with Jesus, supporting Him, walking with Him, they split the scene, man. Verse 8, You shriveled me up. It has become a witness, and my leanness rises up against me. It testifies to my face. His anger has torn me. Jesus was torn and hunted me down. He's gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary glares at me. Now, in Jesus' case, his adversary would have been Satan, glaring at him. He was torn, gang, by the scourge, by the nails, by the thorns. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. His adversary, the devil, glaring with glee at the brutality of it all. Verse 10, they have gaped with me with their mouth. They have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. They have massed themselves against me. God hands me over to ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked, which is exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. God handed him over. Psalm 22, verse 7, another prophecy says, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. Matthew 27, in describing the cross, says in verse 39, Those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking Him. In the same way that Job's friends shook their heads in disgust. And the psalmist prophesied such mockery for Christ, so the enemies of Jesus slapped his face, plucked his beard, and wagged their heads at him on the cross. Verse 12. I was at ease, but he shattered me. He has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. Listen, he has also set me up as his target. There's two other ways to to say set me up here. Literally, he stood me up. Or hung me up as his target. As Jesus was stood up, hung up on the cross. A target of abuse and shame and scorn. 
And Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 13, His arrows surround me. Without mercy He splits my kidneys open and pours my gall on the ground. This is incredibly specific. Gang, where are your kidneys? They're to the back. And oftentimes, an outcome of scourging was the splitting of the kidneys. That's how deep it would go. And the gall, my gall is poured out on the ground. Well, what's interesting is Matthew 27, 34 tells us that they gave Jesus wine mixed with gall or myrrh to drink. And what did he do? He spit it out on the ground. My gall is on the ground. Verse 14, he breaks through me with breach after breach or literally cut after cut. Which is what happened again to Christ Jesus. Cut after cut. Verse 15. I have sewed sackcloth over my skin. Or as I said before, what Job was describing as my skin is is loose. It's hanging off my body. It's shredded. Jesus was beaten, scourged, beaten some more, crowned with thorns, all before even reaching Golgotha. Breach after breach, cut upon cut, his back shredded up like old sackcloth. And Job says... He says, my, and thrust my horn in the dust. Now that's an interesting phrase. The horn is a symbol of Hebrew authority. The horn, a sign of literally anointed authority. Remember when Samuel anointed David, what did he do? He poured the anointing oil out of a horn. And the horn was that symbol for Israel. And, and the Lord even said, I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed, which he did in Jesus But what Job is saying and what applies to Jesus here literally is my authority has been thrown down. My authority has been cast off. It seemed as though Messiah's authority was gone at Calvary when He was lifted up, when He was set up as a target. Where's the authority? Hey, if He's the Christ, tell Him to come down off the cross. Save Himself. We'll believe Him. Show us some authority. And Jesus would show none. It says, Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, He would not call on His authority. I could have called 12 legions of angels, He told Peter, but I didn't. Because my authority has been set aside for the moment. Verse 17. Job says, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. There was no violence in Jesus. No violence. He said to Peter, put the sword away, Peter. When Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, flailing wildly, Jesus said, no, we're not doing it that way. The cup which the Father has given me, Jesus said, shall I not drink it? We're not fighting back, Peter. There there was no violence in his hands. He was oppressed, Isaiah 53 says. He was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And by the way, his prayer, Christ's prayer was absolutely pure. What did he pray from the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Chapter 17, verse 1, My spirit is broken, my days are extinguished. The grave. The grave is ready for me, Job says. Jesus could say the same thing. I have a grave prepared for me. Isaiah 53, verse 9 tells us, His grave was assigned with wicked men. That's where He was supposed to go. 
his grave assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You see, what should have happened on the cross or following the cross is the body of Jesus should have been dumped in a pit with the bodies of the criminals. That's what they did. Man, when you went up on the cross, you were consigned. You were a criminal of Rome and you didn't get an honorable burial. You were pulled down from the cross and tossed into a pit, a mass grave with other criminals. But because Jesus was Jesus, you know what happened? Joseph of Arimathea, the wealthy man, came along and said, could we have the body? Pilate said, fine. And so Joseph takes Jesus' body and though his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet with the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus was laid in Joseph's new tomb, a precise and perfect prophecy fulfilled. Verse 5 of chapter 17, He who informs or prays on his friends for a share of the spoil of the eyes of his children also will languish. Well, Jesus was informed upon, wasn't he, by Judas? Yeah, but did Judas have children? We don't know, really, if he had kids. Probably not. But there's something understood in, in Jewish thought and Jewish thinking that all future generations of little Judases of those who would have been Judas' children were killed when Judas committed suicide. That to the Jewish mind, the murder of one man is the murder of all those who would have come from that one man's body. And so, literally, the children of Judas would languish, would not have life. But even more than that, it, there was an informing on Jesus uh, by others, praying upon Jesus, and the eyes of others' children languished there after the cross. What do you mean? How tragic has it been for the children of Israel who have languished for 2,000 years because of the decision of their forefathers to inform against or pray upon their very Messiah? What has been the outcome for the Jewish people? Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five. All the people said... His blood shall be on us and on our children. And it has been. Are you blaming the Jews now? No. You've heard me say it. Not just the Jews, not just the Romans. Actually, it was the Father who poured out His wrath on Jesus. But we are all culpable. And yet, that decision, His blood be on us and on our children, the children of Israel have languished all these many years. Verse 6 in chapter 17. And there's so much here. I'm actually even skipping over some things. And I encourage you to go back and look. But He has made me a byword of the people. I am one at whom men spit. Which we know is exactly what happened. Isaiah 50 verse 6. Speaking again of the disciple, I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Matthew 26.27 They spat in His face and beat Him with their fists and others slapped Him. Matthew 27.30 They spat on Him. They took the reed and began to beat Him on the head. Now this is amazing to me because and I don't know if you noticed this but you, I, I found myself pulling Old Testament and New Testament verses alike right and left all speaking about Jesus and it's just amazing to me that the whole thing is about Jesus. Pulling verses out of the Psalms, out of Isaiah, out of Job, and we're seeing Jesus over and over. Why is that? Because, listen, the Bible is not a filter for Jesus Christ. Jesus is the filter for Scripture. When you look at the Scripture, looking for and at and to Jesus, you see it in a completely different way. If you're looking at the Scripture to give you just information, you'll miss it. But if you go looking for Jesus, verse by verse by verse, you will see Him. Revealed to you. God has been purposeful in, in this amazing word. Purposeful from page one all the way to the end to say it's all about Jesus, man. 
If you will open your eyes, look, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And in his own suffering, Job is point for point describing the suffering of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. 4,000 years ago. Again, there's so much here. I won't even cover it all, but look down in verse 14. He says, If I call to the pit, you are my father. Or if I were to call to the worm, my mother and my sister. He's talking about being in the ground there. He says he feels like part of the worm family. Jesus says, prophetically, Psalm 22.6, I am a worm. <laughs> a couple of the little... Uh, Little boys came up to me and they, they were laughing and they said, Look, 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 Pastor Rick, Psalm 22. He says, I'm a worm. Isn't that funny? And I'm like, Oh, it, yeah. <laughs> how do I, you know, how do I explain this to him? It's Jesus saying, I'm, I'm lower than a man. The word that Job chooses to the worm, which are my mother and my sister. Verse 15, Where now is my hope? And who regards my hope? Will it go down with me to Sheol? Do you regard the hope of Jesus? Is He the source of your hope? This is incredible to me. The hope of Jesus went down into Sheol. Jesus took His hope with Him and went down into Sheol after the crucifixion to gather the spirits of all those who had hoped for redemption in a coming Messiah. All those who died in faith before Jesus came. That question is often asked. Maybe it's been asked of you. What about all those people who died before Jesus? Jesus came and died and you have faith in Him and so you're saved. But what about all those who came before Him? Well, it's very simple. Romans 3.25 God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation, a cleansing in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because, listen, in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. All those who had sinned, who had lived before Jesus came, God said, you know what? I'm going to pass over their sin. We're going to put that on hold. I'm going to cover them for now. Abraham, whose faith, Paul said, was reckoned as righteousness. I'll give you a credit. You hold on to that, Abraham. Covered for now. Daniel. Isaiah, Job, men of faith, uh, let's, let's, they're going to die in their faith. And I'm not going to pronounce eternal judgment, not yet. They die in their faith, then suddenly along comes Jesus, who is the answer. Jesus dies, and this faith now gets credited to the cross of Christ. And so, Jesus goes down to Sheol with His hope. He takes His hope with Him to Sheol. And Ephesians 4 verse 8 says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives. Paul said this expression, He ascended, what does it mean that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that He might fill all things. And it's incredible. Jesus took His hope down, picked up all those who were hoping for Him, hoping in Messiah, hoping for resurrection in the Father, and brought Him home. Took Him out. What we see here in the midst of Job's suffering is a great and graphic and explicit prophetic picture of the sufferings of Jesus who Isaiah told us is the disciple. He is the model. What are you saying, Rick? Are you saying somehow Jesus is speaking through Job? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying through Job's suffering, get this, 
through Job's suffering, without even knowing it or being aware of it himself, he is looking more and more like Jesus. That the pain and the anguish of Job as he speaks out these words, these are the words of Christ. He's looking more and more like Jesus. This is discipleship 101, my friends. Because this is the process, hear me on this, this is the process by which we ourselves become comforters rather than compounders of pain. And I shared this before, pain can drive you one of two ways. You can become bitter and caustic and lash out at others. Or you can become a comforter of others. What's the difference? Jesus. If you know Jesus, your pain will lead you to be more like Him. If you don't know Jesus, your pain is going to drive you further from Him. The way of the disciple, and I would have argued this point 20 years ago, the way of the disciple of Jesus Christ is the path of suffering. The more suffering, the more anguish, the more struggle in your life, the more opportunity to be like Jesus. Well, I haven't suffered in my life. Does that mean I'm not like Jesus? I'm not saying that. Does that mean I'm less you know, spiritual than those who have suffered more than me? I'm not saying that. Jesus said in Matthew 10.24, a disciple is not above his teacher. A slave is not above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. And guess what? If we're going to become like our teacher and like our master, guess where we must go? To the cross. That's the path. Take up your cross, Jesus said. Follow me. Go the direction I went. This is hard, but Jesus invites us to enter into His suffering. For to you, Paul said, Philippians 1.29, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Another verse we've covered already. Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. I like that. And the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. The fellowship of suffering. That's what we're talking about. This is why Job is speaking these words that sound so much like Jesus. Because in his suffering, he is being formed and fashioned after the nature, after the character of Jesus. Again, without knowing it. And we ourselves, without knowing it, even when we're completely unaware, suffering makes us more like Christ. Now, Rick, I don't like the sound of that. Because so far, life hasn't been so bad. What are you telling me? That I'm going to have to go through all this horror? I'm, listen, I'm not saying this to discourage anybody, but to encourage you. That whatever suffering you have gone through, or are now going through, or will go through in the future, it makes all the difference for a disciple of Jesus Christ to comfort with the comfort of Christ. See... Why could Job say, Eliphaz, if I was in your place, I would strengthen you with my mouth and and the solace of my lips could lessen your pain? Only because Job had experienced suffering. And through his suffering had a deeper compassion. 
a deeper reality than he had had before. Back when Job was rich and happy and everything going well and, and all things were good for him. When he lost it all, then he was thrust into a place where now he could bring comfort to someone because he really, really got it. But I don't want to go through that. You don't have any choice. See, that's the good news here. You don't go looking for suffering. Trust me, it'll find you. You don't go trying to figure out a way to put yourself in a painful situation so you can be... No, you live for Jesus, but you know, you know along the way that the path of suffering is the way to Jesus. You're going to go through the cross. That's how you're going to become more like Him. How is this comforting? It's comforting to know that whatever your pain, Jesus is using it to make you more like Him. We often say, Lord, make me like You. You want to be like Jesus? Then when suffering comes your way, the attitude is bring it on. If it will make me more like You. If it will fashion me more like, if my heart will become more like your heart, bring it on. Suffering, gang, it comes in all shapes and sizes. You know this, it could be poverty. Some struggling financially, and it's painful. It could be physical illness. Some dealing with stuff that, uh, there are some here dealing with things that most of us don't even know about. It could be persecution. Someone going after you because of your faith. It might be abuse. Maybe as a child, or at some point in your life. But among all these different things, listen, Jesus knew them all. Jesus suffered them all. He was impoverished. He knew pain. He knew physical ailment. He knew persecution. And He knew abuse. And He would say to you and to me, if you want to be more like me, there's really only one path to walk. And I know it's going to hurt, but I've been there. But what did Paul say? I know there will be pain. But just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And see, that's the encouragement. You're going to go through hard times. Jesus is going to be right there with you. You're going to suffer. Jesus is going to bring you a comfort that is more abundant than your suffering. And through the whole process... He makes you, He makes me more like Him. I've shared before that growing up with a cleft lip and cleft palate was painful. And not just physically. Um, I had, what, 20, 21, 22 surgeries before I was 18 years old. In and out of the hospital all the time. And I believe I've told you, I've shared that my parents handled it in such a way that it didn't seem as bad as, as it really was. I mean, it was amazing. They, they, they were marvelous in the way they dealt with it. The trips to the hospital and visiting the doctors and being in the hospital and, and all of that. But the painful part, as a kid, was what other kids said and did. Which happened all the time. Because my lip was pretty much constantly under construction through elementary school. Think about that. And yet God used that. And, and I, I, I can share that without any bitterness or, or pain. It, it, it doesn't even hurt to think about. Because I know what God has done. And it still absolutely stuns me that this scarred lip is used to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I spend my life talking with this mouth. 
that at a time had trouble even forming words. And when Paul says, don't bother anymore because on my body I bear the marks of Jesus, that's the first thing I think of is the scars on my lip. I think, cool. Because somehow, marvelously, through the process and comforting me all along the way, the Lord began to form me and fashion me. And He's not done yet. There's a lot of work that He's doing in my life, and I'm sure in yours as well. But I just, I want you to be encouraged. I think the Lord wants us to be encouraged. Man, if you're going through it right now, praise God. Trust God. He is making you more like the suffering disciple. He is making you more like Jesus. Hey, if you're in a season of ease, praise God. Thank Him. But recognize whether suffering has been past, present, or future. God knows how to use it to make you like Him. That's why we see Jesus in the words of Job. And Father, that's why we praise You that even in our sorrow, something that is so foreign to the thinking of our world, even in our sorrow and pain and suffering and heartache, if we will just trust in You, we become like You. What an absolute amazing blessing. Lord, I... I pray that You will allow me to enter into that place, the fellowship of suffering. That I might know the joy of the Savior. If if you want to be more like Jesus, I invite you to pray that in your heart to the Lord. Just, Just pray, I want to enter the fellowship of Your suffering that I may know the joy of my Savior. And Father, for those who don't know You, I just pray a special prayer this morning, especially if we have anyone visiting this hour or next who doesn't know Jesus. I pray, Lord, that this teaching on suffering would not be something to frighten someone away, but but a realization that in the worst of it, it doesn't have to be senseless. That my suffering doesn't have to be without meaning. But that it can actually be used by You to bring comfort into my life. I pray comfort, Father, for those who are in pain right now. Brothers and sisters right here this morning who I know are struggling with illness and struggling with abuse and persecution and hardship and some poverty, Father, I I pray that You would pour out Your comfort through Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand up together.